This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 290. And the quote of the day is from Nolan Ryan, who said, Enjoying success requires the ability to adapt. Only by being open to change will you have a true opportunity to get the most from your talent. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here. When you are listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, hope all is well in your world. I just uh, just got back from LA. I did a bunch of great interviews while I was down there. And, you know, one of the things that was cool when I was down there is the people I interviewed all sort of mentioned how, how great they thought it was that I was able to build Drummer's Resource, which, okay, that's fine. But the one thing that really stuck out was that they said that there was a sense of community that they noticed with the podcast. So I have you to thank for that. I thought that was really cool. I thought that that spoke volumes to not only what we're working on here at Drummer's Resource, but the fact that one, you're getting value out of it, but two, you're creating a community around these things and people are commenting on things and and people are tagging me on Instagram to share with their friends and all that. So that stuff is is really amazing and it doesn't go unnoticed. So I want to say thank you for that. And also other people are noticing it too. So it's not just me. So thank you. And let's keep it happening. Um, you know, get on the social channels at Drummer's Resource on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff and interact, join the conversation. And we, you know, we would love to hear from you. And I know that everyone out there has something great to add to the community. So definitely do that. And let's get into this conversation. This is with Stephen Wolf or people just call him Wolf. And he is one of the world's most in-demand studio musicians. So this is from his site. His discography includes numerous number one gold, platinum, and Grammy winning records. He's a virtuoso drummer and a world-class programmer. He has an encyclopedic musical vocabulary spanning every music genre. And his distinctive skill set and versatility have made him the go-to rhythm solution for a long list of the world's top recording artists and producers. Let me give you a little rundown of some of the people who he has worked with. And his credits include Alicia Keys, Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, Beyonce, Pink, Aretha Franklin, Britney Spears, Avril Lavigne, Shaka Khan, Josh Stone, Kelly Clarkson, Jennifer Hudson. This this list continues for a very long time. I'm just not going to list all, you know, I'm scrolling right now and there's hundreds. So definitely a good guy to talk to about one, uh, his sort of his past career as I'll call it like a live studio, a live drummer and a live studio drummer. And now he's doing a lot more programming. He's adapting to the current landscape of the music industry. And he shares a ton of knowledge about that. And also has a lot of advice for people who are trying to get into what he does now. And this ties into the, to the pod, to Friday's podcast, uh, session 289, where I talk about working for free and doing things on spec. And he has some great insight about that as well. So I want to get right into it. Without further ado, let's talk to the one and only Stephen Wolf. Wolf, my man, how are you doing, man? Hey, good to talk to you, Nick. Likewise, likewise. We got a lot to talk about, man. Especially because yeah. we're, you know, we're we're Philly cats. Um, yes, you're you're a bit older than me, but but we'll yeah. 
Sorry, I didn't mean to put you out there right oh, right from yeah. the right from the <laughs> jump. I was like, let me uh, let me put it's all you good. out. There. Yeah, no, it's it's good to hear a Philly accent. Mine's <laughs> kind of much subtler now. I've lost it. Over, I've I've lived outside of Philly longer than I lived in Philly, but it comes out in certain words. I got you. Still, yeah, I got so. you. So when you were in when you were in Philly in like the early forties, late fifties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just I'm messing with you. All right. So not, uh, not that far off. No. Yeah. Oh, come <laughs> on. Uh, so I want to I want to talk about. I mean, there's so much to talk about. You we want to talk about your career. Uh, you know, the credits, the the you used to tour. You're a producer. You 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 do uh, session work, all that stuff. But let's build a little bit of context for maybe some people who don't know who you are, aren't familiar with your work. So we sort of touched on it. You're you know you're from Philly. Um, but, but give me like the, give me the 30 second little, uh, backstory of, of you growing up and getting into drums. It'll be a little longer than 30 seconds, but all you, uh, all, 30 seconds yeah. is all you got. That's it. Okay. And then we cut it. Um, it's like, we play the wrap yeah. up music after 30 got it. seconds. Got it. All right. <laughs> no, um, yeah. No, my, my mom said when she was pregnant with me, I, anytime she was around music, I would start kicking and yeah. she said I would actually kick Elvin Jones grooves. No, I made I made that part up. Um, <laughs> I was actually trying to think who, like, what year who what would have been on the radio. But, uh, right. um, yeah, no, no. She said I would just kick. It wasn't like a rhythm or anything. But she was she was like, he's going to be a drummer. And so yeah, by the time I was like old enough to hit things, I was banging on shit. Mm-hmm. And um, they got me. A, my parents got me a toy kit when I was three, and it was like the only toy drum set that didn't have like clown paintings on it so I, I thought it was a real drum set mm-hmm. and I, I used to argue with adults when they would say they were toys and um and i basically destroyed them because they were toys and then um my parents kind of wanted me to play piano my father plays piano and um i so when i was five i took piano lessons but my heart wasn't in it and i was still just like banging on pots and pans and uh so when I was seven, they finally took me to like a local mom and pop music store in the Philly suburbs and got me some sticks and a pad. Was that medley? No, it wasn't medley, uh-huh. but medley is where I, I got my first, my first kit was secondhand, but my first real drum set that I washed cars for like three summers in high school to, to buy, I bought a medley. Man, that was the greatest music yeah, store. Medley was the, the shit. It was Such a great so store. awesome. I got my first drum machine there, my first, all my first electronics, my first drum, my yeah. real drums, my first new cymbal. I used to go there and like put like five dollars down on a symbol and i'd be like every <laughs> week i'd be like here's another 10 bucks here's 20 bucks yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah really cool store um for people who don't know medley music is no longer a business but it was a really great store in the philly suburbs in and Brim it was Mar- there for what 50 years time. Yeah, and they were all they were also like pioneering drum clinics like mm-hmm. i saw like simon phillips billy Cobham. I'm not, I didn't see Gab there, but um, yeah, they used to host like clinics and the clinics that were like too big for the store, they would host at like Villanova University or something. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, Medley was great. So um, no, it was actually, it was a store called, I think it was called Bala Music or something in Bala Kinwood. Mm. It's not like long gone and said if I, if I like practiced, they would get me a drum set and they, they did. They got me like a secondhand kit like a, less than a year later and um at that point, it was still too young for me to be allowed to play in the school bands. I think you had to be in like fourth or fifth grade or I don't remember what grade. So I was just taking lessons and then I started taking lessons with Elaine Watts. I don't know if you know who she is. She, she's been a, she's still teaching. She's in her 80s and she still gigs and she still teaches. But was, she was like a... Somebody told me about her. Maybe Justin Faulkner was talking about her. A lot, of, a lot of people. Uh, she t- she was Jerry Brown's teacher. I think he was one of her first students. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And um, 
Yeah, and she would always say, like, look at Jerry. Because when I was a kid, Jerry was already, like, a star, like, in fusion and pop and R&B. So, right. um, and I, I actually saw him do a clinic at Medley. But um, what's up, Jerry, if you're listening? Um, anyway, yeah, so, and then she, she, she gave me a really good foundation. I don't even remember learning to read music, but, like, I've looked back at my old drum books, and they were, like, dated in the 70s. And I was like, man, how old was I? And I don't even remember learning to read this shit, but yeah, she taught me to read. She taught me classical percussion, mallets, drum set. She took me through the, the Jim Chapin drum set book that mm-hmm. everybody goes through. Yeah. And, um, and then at a certain point she was like, I can't really show you anymore on drum set. She, so she sent me to one of her former students who turned me on to more advanced stuff. And then he went to college. So then like most, most of my teen years, I just was self-taught. I was buying records and, was really a fusion head at that point. And I would, so I'd be listening to like Billy Cobham or Tony Williams or Gad or whoever. Right. And I would put, I'd put my hand on the, the vinyl to slow it down so I could figure it out. And it's not like now where you can like time stretch shit and it doesn't back. It would actually slow it, it down. Roar. Exactly. So it's kind of <laughs> hard to hear the voicing, like what's playing what, but you could make out the rhythms at least. Right. Um, the cool thing about that is is I would get stuff wrong. I would play the phrase, but I would voice it wrong because I, you know, I didn't know. It's not like today where you can actually go on YouTube and you can see the drummer themselves demonstrate it and you can see like a thousand other videos of other drummers demonstrating the same thing. Or you can get a Skype lesson with the drummer who played it. And so I envy today's generation, but I also don't envy them because like a lot of drummers from the generations before the internet, like it's kind of like we had to hunt for our food. So like... Had a, it was a, our styles became a little more unique because we were all guessing at shit. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, yeah, so that, and then my last year of high school, I studied with a guy named Carl Matola. Did you know Carl? He was in South mm, Philly. No, he was, he was the house drummer in all the Atlantic City casinos. Oh, okay, the, okay, and that was still a thing. So this is like I graduated high school in '86. So okay. this was like, um, and he was great. He kind of like any weak points in my playing, like. I was already a good reader, but he was like, you need to learn how to like sight read anything. So he would pull out all his big band charts because he had played with everybody like when he coming up. And that was, you know, that was a thing that like, even, even in the eighties, it was like, you know, eighties and nineties, even like you, you had to learn big band charts. And, and I, I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's sort of a, a thing of the past, sadly, you know, that, that people don't, I don't know anybody who's like learning big band charts in, you know, in high school anymore. I think they're probably there. Mu- there's probably a handful of high schools in the country that still have big band programs. I'm sure overseas they do because the arts definitely right. are treated better over- overseas. But it- here, probably not many high schools unless it's like a performing arts high school. Of course. But uh, yeah, and then in college, obviously, like music schools, definitely. But um, yeah, and not only that. If you were a big band, like if you could play big band, then you could get gigs. Exactly, and and you had to be able to just do a lot of things because i like i could play brushes but i couldn't really play brushes so he whipped me into shape he had the philly joe jones brush book and he and philly joe had been friends so like he showed me all philly joe shit and um so yeah by the time i got and i went to berkeley after high school and and in high school i was already gigging like at night and i was i was playing in it like you know philly has a lot of great musicians so Mm -hmm. i was playing in like cover bands like playing print songs and rock songs and whatever. And then I was playing in a fusion band with, do you know Kurt Rosenwinkel? He's, he's, he's kind of a famous jazz guitarist, but he moved to Europe after Berkeley. He's, um, anyway, he's, he's like a big name in the, 
the jazz world. But he, okay. we were in a fusion band in high school together. So I was in a fusion band and then like a cover band playing pop and R&B and funk. And um, kind of everybody like in all the bands I was in, they've all gone on to, to do things in the music business hmm. in different capacities. Some are more behind the scenes, like working at record labels. Some are singer-songwriters. Some are like sidemen, some are producers. And, um, but yeah, I went to Berkeley and um, my goal was not to graduate. It was to network and get experience playing with more great musicians and get and yeah network and get a gig which is what happened so i got a gig and dropped out and, uh, which almost, coincidentally most of the people who i've had on the podcast who went to berkeley did that yeah that was kind of the thing i mean not that there used to be a joke like if you graduated you sucked which isn't true because i have a few friends that graduated that are hugely successful in the right. music business right like multi-grammy winners and stuff so it's there there are no rules with that but mm. uh but I was there at a good time. There were a lot of amazing drummers. You've interviewed, like, Amandola was just on the show. But mm-hmm. there were so many great drummers when I was there, um, yeah, he's which was good. I, actually, I just started yeah. studying with, with him, actually. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and Scott, you know, Scott's, re- we've all reinvented ourselves. Like, Jay Belrose was there. Jay was such a, he, such a different drummer from the guy he's become now. And, yeah. like, he's he's totally carved out a niche for himself now. And um, But I can go, like, go on and on. Like, Brian Tishy. I don't know if you've. If you know Brian, he's... I, I, he, I know of him. We don't know each other personally. I haven't had him on yeah. the podcast, but I, I definitely know who he is, of course. He's, he grew up in Jersey, mm-hmm. and uh, he's he's he was... And you kind of knew back at Berkeley, like, certain people were already, like, kind of themselves. They just fine-tuned themselves. But he was already himself. To me, he's, like, the best rock drummer today. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's... Yeah, he, but he was already a monster back then. And, and there's there were so many others, so... And I'm sure you've interviewed a bunch, so... Um, Anyway, so that's basically the longer than 30 second version of how I got into it. So I'm curious how, so when you were, when you were at Berkeley, was it just, were you networking with other people at Berkeley or were you networking with, with people at Berkeley and all these people outside? Cause the weird thing is like Boston's not a hotbed for music. No, but there is a scene. I mean, there, there was a little more of a scene back then, like, cause the cars, you know, were, right. they were a huge band. And so like anytime a band, it's like any scene if a band does well, like Aerosmith was a Boston band, like, like people that work with them or sometimes the band themselves, they'll like open up a studio in town. So there's, there's, there's always something going on that, mm-hmm. that was like grew out of that. So there was a, there was a scene. So I was working at night with, with people that weren't part of Berkeley. And I was also gigging with bands with Berkeley students and sometimes with my teachers. And, um, yeah, it was it was good training. I mean, I, and because I knew I wasn't going to graduate, I only signed up for ensembles and ear training because ear training's always useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so I got to be, you know I was playing in big bands, I was playing in small groups, playing every kind of every genre you can think of, and and I think it was Gordon was just recently talking about like not wanting to have any holes in his playing mm-hmm. you, on your podcast. He was yeah. talking about that. Yeah, and that was kind of my concept at Berkeley, like. I was the best drummer in my neighborhood, but I got to Berkeley and now there's hundreds of us and we were all the best drummers in our neighborhood. Right. And so like my first night I got to the dorms, I walked around the practice rooms and this was before now that like there's kits in all the rooms. So you don't have to bring a kit back then there weren't. So we had to lug our kit around all the time. <laughs> like, so if I was playing in four ensembles a day and gig and night and doing rehearsal, that meant I was carrying my drums and breaking them up and setting them down in beat like five, six times a day. And um, I still like I'm pissed off at Berkeley for that. <laughs> like, the students had I'm pissed off at now. Berkeley for that. And I didn't even go there. <laughs> yeah. And just just. Yeah. I, it, but the good thing was it got me into playing a small kit, just kick snare hat. And mm-hmm. um, 
and even when I moved to New York, like when I was touring, I would use like a humongous kit because I had a tech. But like when I was still when I was in town in between tours, if I was playing nightclubs, I just had a taxi kit, which was like an 18 inch kick, piccolo snare, 12 inch hats, like just shit as small as I could get it so I could carry it in one trip. What'd you call and it? I, a taxi kit? I never heard that. I called it my taxi kit. Yeah. Because I've heard of a snack, a snack pack. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, and taxi drivers wouldn't stop for you if they saw drums. So my kit was so small, I could literally hide it behind a mailbox and and just have like my stick bag, hail a cab. And then as he stops, um, I would just say, oh, can you, can I put this bag in the trunk? And as soon as he opens the trunk, then he can't go anywhere. And you're like, boom, drum set. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. They love that. Um, Yeah, they didn't. Um, but uh, yeah, so so Berkeley, it was actually Zach Alford who turned me on to that concept because I remember like hearing him play one day before I knew him, and I was like, man, who the fuck is this playing? It was like the first time I heard like a, like an authentic New York funky drummer playing, mm-hmm. and um and I looked in the window and the guy was just playing kick snare hat, and I was like, oh man, I got to get rid of my toms. So um that's a I don't know if you know Zach Alford, he's one of my favorites. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. So um anyway, so yeah, Berkeley was cool for that and um i totally went off on a tangent i don't remember what I, oh That's so what here for my, my first night i walk around the, the practice rooms downstairs there's also practice rooms on each floor in the dorms but mm-hmm. downstairs there's like with the glass windows you can look in and see who's playing and i saw who i didn't know at the time was easily the best drummer at school at the time mm-hmm. and um and the guy played like Vinny, like sounded exactly like him Jeez. and and I was like, oh, man, I suck. Because I was, you know, I could really play. I had a lot of shots, but, like, it wasn't quite on that level yet. Like, right. I didn't have that confidence. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, when you when you could just, like, own it. So he came out, and I was like, you know, I was like, oh, hey, can I ask you some questions? Like, little kid. And right. he was really cool. And then I, I soon found out, like, once school started, that, like, oh, he was like, that's not, like, the, the bar isn't that high. He's, like, unusually good for the school. Oh, uh, well, that's good. But there were still some really great drummers. And the funny thing is him and another guy, the other guy's name was Ray Anthony. And Ray is kind of like MIA in school. Ray is one of the best drummers I've ever heard in my life. He was really? so far beyond it. He kind of had that gad thing where like whatever he played, there was just a depth to it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of people, especially at Berkeley, everybody's got chops. Right. And as you know, like chops really aren't that important. Like mm-hmm. as far as working drummers, you need a certain amount of chops, but that's not what makes you a popular drummer for hire right and um for the most part and um yeah and ray had shops but there was just like a depth i don't know if you've ever actually like stood close to gad when he's playing but i just saw him with chick korea and literally sat right like if i put my hand out i would have touched his back yeah (laughs) because i i got to hear him like standing yeah that close where i used to play with grover washington jr and Grover did like an all-star reunion gig. So it was like Gad and Ralph McDonald, like the guys that played on his records and mm-hmm. Grover and it was in New York. So Grover let me come through and just hang out while they were playing. And I was like, I get it. Like standing right next to him, I was like, man, he was just basically playing pocket shit, you know, yeah. and a couple Gad fills and things right. like that. But I was like, man, that's the shit right there. Same the thing, thing with like Steve, Steve Jordan is the same way. Yeah. Like Steve plays basically simple shit. But it's it's really deep, right? So. That's why I'm always like, you know, you could play something that Steve Jordan plays, but you can't make it sound like him. You know, sitting the one thing that's amazing about well, not you know, there's many things that are amazing about Gad, but sitting behind him and sitting that close, like I've seen Steve Gad play live, I've seen him on video, I've seen the clinics, all that stuff. But sitting that close to him, it's like it's just a whole nother world. 
and you're and you can see I could start to see like the ideas developing and and start really understanding how just musically plays and it was mind blowing. I can't even explain how much and like like I said, and I'm a huge Steve Gadd is probably you know top three for me if not yeah you know number one yeah. and but watching him that close it, it just it was another level man it, yeah it just, and i think the dude's in his 70s now and he's still killing it yeah it's crazy yep. so yeah so yeah there's certain and, and the thing is like when i got when i dropped out of berkeley i was 20 i'm in new york and i'm playing in hiram bullock's band i don't mm-hmm. know if you know hiram was but hiram yeah. was part of the original letterman band with 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 will lee and steve jordan mm-hmm. and paul Schaefer and um Hiram worked with all those guys. So like all of a sudden I'm in New York and like the drum, Charlie Drayton had been his drummer before me, his touring drummer. And Charlie's another, like one of my heroes Mm -hmm. and, um, and Charlie split. So he was just checking different drummers out. And like the, if I told you the drummers that were playing with him before he hired me, it was like, like somebody, like one of the tapes that I was sent to like learn the set was like Dennis Chambers was in his band (laughs) for a week. And it's like, so it's like Hiram worked with all those guys, Gad and, and like, um, talk about like being intimidated, you know, it's like you get to New York and all of a sudden, like the guys who were my idols are now my competition basically. Mm -hmm. And and, who who played the band before Steve Jordan? Um, the Letterman band, it was Steve. It was Steve. The first band, basically there was a band called the 24th street band, which was Clifford Carter on keyboards, Willie on bass, uh, Steve Jordan on drums and Hiram Bullock on guitar and Paul Schaefer. And they were kind of like, there were, there were a couple bands in New York that were like the cats, like stuff, you know, Steve Gadd played in. And then the 24th street band, that was like one of the other bands of cats. And, um, so Paul Schaefer just took that band except for Clifford, but he would use Clifford when he needed extra keyboards. Mm -hmm. But, um, so that was the band. And then like Hiram was the first to go after two years, he split, he got, they were all doing sessions, but Hiram got his own deal on Atlantic. He split and, um, he may have been fired. He was really unreliable. But um, either way, he split, and he was replaced by a few people that ended up being Sid McGinnis. And then Jordan left for similar reasons, partially because he was busy and partially probably he was missing gigs too. And right. so Anton Fig took over. And um, But yeah, Steve Jordan was the original drummer for the first few years of that band. I remember watching a video of Steve Jordan talking about getting this gig. Yeah. And was worried, like, he was sort of, he was, like, really nervous. And, but maybe... Maybe it was subbing for somebody. Oh, uh, it wasn't that. It might have been subbing for somebody, or it could have been um, maybe it was the SNL band. Because you know what? Maybe because he got the SNL band them. first, right? I, yeah, and Hiram too. So it was probably the SNL gig. That's what before. I think it was. Yeah. So yeah. So, but uh, yeah, and like I met Jordan was one of the first people I met in New York, and I met him in the most random place where I was playing on the street, and um, and I didn't even know it was him. And then we we're talking, and I'm like, "Oh, are you Steve Jordan?" Like it was, yeah, it's just. <laughs> Yeah, it was like overwhelming to like all of a sudden you're in town and like these are the cats that you're like trying to compete for gigs with. Right. Are you friends with Steve now? I'm as friendly as I guess he can be with other musicians. He's kind of a hard guy to get to know. He's a nice guy, but right. like he was definitely nicer to me before he knew I, I was like gigging like a working drummer because mm-hmm. and I know he's really into like mentoring like students and because um, he had a lot of mentors when, when he was coming up, but um yeah, no, I was playing in the park. I used to just, when I got to New York, I, I was playing with Hiram and he had his deal, but he was also, like I said, he was unreliable. He had a drug problem. Like, and then all of a sudden the tour would get canceled. So in the meantime, I'm committed to paying rent in the city. So like I started doing wedding gigs. I was playing like $40 a night blues bar gigs. And I would also play on the street with a percussionist and we would just play grooves. Mm-hmm. 
and we would play to just get food money and the cops would always shut us down but usually we'd made enough and and one of these times we're playing in washington square park and that we have a huge crowd and we're making a bunch of money and the cops are just being dicks because legally you're allowed to play drums in the park if it's like during park hours right. and so they're telling us to pack it up and some dude gets up in the cop's face and tells them off and i look up and i was like i think that's steve jordan but i'm not sure <laughs> like I walk up to him and he's like, Hey man, like that's fucked up. He's like, you sound beautiful. And I was like, wow. And I was like, are you, are you Steve Jordan? And he said, yeah. And I was like, Oh man, I'm such a big fan. I was like, I just moved here. I'm playing in Hiram's band. And as soon as I said that, he kind of chilled out and was like, was like not quite as nice to me. Um, <laughs> he was like, "Never mind, man. You suck. You shouldn't. Uh, yeah, yeah. You should probably, you should probably leave town. <laughs> yeah. He didn't take it that far out, but right. But the, but the cool thing is, is like, um, like his his longtime drum tech was out with him with uh, John Mayer now is Artie Smith and Artie is like his tech for me for years when he's when he's in town and um like everybody I know that knows like one of my drum heroes I just pick their brains and yeah. and like I do a lot of sessions with Clifford Carter who was like I said original member of that band with Jordan and I was like man what is it about Steve like. And he was like, you know, I've been trying to figure that out for years. Or Ralph McDonald, who was like the most working percussionist. Like mm -hmm. he was the sound of percussion on hit records for like 20 years. Right. And, um, and same thing with Ralph. Ralph plays really simple shit. But he, he sat in on a gig I was doing with Grover one night and played the same parts as the, the main guy. And the main guy had way more chops than him. But when Ralph just played a clave or something really simple, the music lifted up, the energy lifted up. And um and he was saying the same thing about Jordan. He was like, man, Steve, I'll, when we were in the band, like he would just be playing two and four and it would just feel magic. Yeah. So, I mean, and his theory was like, it's just like the person's spirit or their energy, whatever you want to call it. Just yeah. like their life just coming through the music. You know, there's some of, of where, you know, where they're feeling everything too, you know? Yeah. And, and that's all, that's a result of like the music they were nurtured on you know the, yeah. what they grew up listening to and playing and so like like every generation you can kind of tell what generation the drummer came up in by how they feel the pocket and um so like there's and i've had to adapt on sessions because there are times where it's like i love the fact and a lot of, i get hired a lot because i i can sound like somebody who's like a previous generation because that's i am a previous generation mm -hmm. but if, if they want me to generally for modern shit they're just having me program Right. But if it's something where they want me to program and play drums, a lot of times I have to shift gears and think that if I were a drummer who like grew up like only listening to stuff in the nineties on. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah, it's it's where you feel it and but it's also your experience and I was just talking to somebody recently about um how it took me decades to learn how to play parts on records that are things that I really could have played when I was seven years old. Ah. It's just, it's just that I wouldn't think like, let's say there's a the thing and there's like a bar and on the chart, if there's a chart or, or whatever they say, just, we want to fill there. And it's like a little break in the song. Like for me to not play anything and maybe just hit like the floor Tom on, on beat four or snare, just like something as simple as that. It's like, yeah, I could have done that when I was a kid, but I would never have done that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I was always trying to like play some check me out shit. Right. And so it took me years to do that. And the, not only do I know to do that now, but when I do hit that drum and this is, goes back to the thing I learned from like watching all my heroes is there's a lot more the intent of this is like a little out there, but you know what I mean? It's like, I don't the, think so. The, the energy, like when you play that, even if it's like you said, if, if, if I saw Gad just hit the, the Tom once, 
it's going to feel different than just me just going boom. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think just like a lifetime of just like living my life, going through what I've gone through and playing with, with so many amazing musicians and working with amazing producers over the years. Like I can play that and mean something different than, Mm -hmm. than when I was seven. So I, I basically play the same shit that I've been playing since I was a kid, except now it just sounds better. There's a I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the Counting Crows record August and everything after, but there's there's a fill in there that the, I mean because that whole record is very simplistic and and you know nobody's overplaying at all, so you know nobody's really playing anything, and the drummer does a fill and it's literally just like one e n three e n that's it that's the shit and it's that's- so amazing and it's such yeah. like but if he you know if he did if he did that in the midst of all this other stuff that he's been playing on the whole record it doesn't mean anything but yeah you know when he he play it's it's literally six notes and it sounds yeah amazing yeah you know yeah and it, yeah it's, it's less is more i've i've basically my 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 approach to life not just drumming but i think my drumming has gotten better as a result of it um is how to like fewer better things like if i'm cooking because uh, I like to cook, like, how can I take ingredients out and do more with like fewer but better quality ingredients? Right. And same thing with music as a producer. I'm always trying to think how, what tracks can I get rid of? Like, mm-hmm. how can I put more space in the music? Mm-hmm. And, and absolutely with drumming, that's my approach. And I originally had to learn how to play simpler because I was, before the call, we were talking about how I like fucked my hands up, my hands and my back when I was 20, to the point where I was told I'd never play again. And I, I did a lot of rehab on it um, with like alternative medicine, changing my diet and acupuncture, acupressure, chiropractic, all, all that stuff. And, um, it was Western doctors, sports doctors that were like, you're fucked. Quick right. drums. They're like, here, take but, this medicine or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, they were just like, you can't play. And how did you, how, so wh- how did you injure yourself? Um, this was going back to Berkeley when I was like playing, if I was awake, I was playing somewhere right. like either in an ensemble. If I had time, by the time, like I was in my second year there, I was gigging too much to really practice anymore. I would, if I, I might have a chance to practice or if anything, I would just, if I had like a half hour, I'd sit on drummer's row in front of the mailboxes where we would all sit and just like play on the carpeted surface there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I was just constantly carrying, just, just lugging a whole kit around, like on your back that takes its toll and then playing. And this is also the, this is like the mid late eighties where music was getting louder. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm playing in nightclubs where like, the guitarist and the bass player like are bringing in like these big stacks Mm. and and if if it's an instrumental gig like i was playing with the sax player for a while and like so he's mic'd up through the pa but but everybody's playing loud but the drums aren't mic'd and so i was playing i was getting heavier cymbals like die cast tubes on my snare drum because i was actually cracking the triple flange tubes and I would like, I would put, I would take all the muffling out of my, my kick drum and I would take one of those like hard pads mm-hmm. and then a hard beater. So you just, you just got so much click and, um, yeah. And I was playing really hard and I was playing stuff that's not supposed to be hit as hard because like at the time I was like, I'm trying to think who my favorite drummers were then. Like I was just all about Clyde Stubblefield. So mm-hmm. everything was just a ton of ghost notes and, um, Dennis Chambers had just kind of come on the scene. So like everything was like, okay, I'm going to like do 30 second note patterns between my like right hand on the, the ride cymbal bell, and my left hand on the hat while I'm playing a backbeat. And it's like, you're, you know, you can, you can't play that many notes and hit super hard at the same time. You can right. only do that so long without really fucking yourself up. Sure. So, 
what would happen is I would be, and I was also eating a really shitty diet. So I would just be pushing myself really hard. Nobody really talked to me about my posture, about my breathing, about stretching, about holding tension. And I would, by the end of one, like every night would be the same. I'd come home from a nightclub. That would be like my last gig of the day. I'd eat some like shitty food and like my hands and back would just feel like mush. I'd fall asleep. I'd wake up ready to go the next day. I was fine. And then one day I woke up and I couldn't move my hands. Like I could barely like hold a pencil. That's how bad they were. And I freaked out. And, um, and I talked to some drummers there and they were like, yeah, it's probably tendonitis. And I went to a sports doctor and they did a bunch of tests and x-rays and they were like, yeah, you're, you're done. You're, you're, you're never going to come back from this. What, what did they say it was tendonitis? They said it was really bad tendonitis, but they, they, they were like, your muscles are just kind of ruined. So I don't remember exactly what they said. And this was also like decades ago. But because that ha- something happened with Steve Smith, too. And I've actually talked to him recently about because I've torn my shoulder and he had a shoulder tear. and He opted not to have s- surgery. Yeah. And uh, I, my shoulder tear was a couple years ago and I healed it with acupuncture. And, um, but back then, like, I didn't know what acupuncture was, sure. you know, and this is before the internet, but, uh, one of the bands I played with back in the days called Screaming Headless Torsos and Dave Huzinski, the leader of the bands, he was at New England, in New England Conservatory at the time. My friend Al was the original drummer with that band and he, we were talking and he was like, oh man, what's wrong? I was really depressed. Cause like my whole identity at that point was like, I'm a drummer. This is all I do. And at that point I'd worked my way up to being like one of the top like maybe five drummers at Berkeley, which out of like hundreds is, is a pretty big deal. Yeah. And, and I was, I knew I was set. I was like, I'm going to get like a really big gig in the next year or so. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, guess what? That's done. So I was actually going to take, take time off and do a cruise ship gig with some really good musicians. And I had to bail on that because it's like, I couldn't play. Do you know who Dan Reeser is? He played on that first Nora Jones record. You know, that's funny that you say that, because I was just listening to that the other day, and I was like, who played drums on this? Dan is a bad motherfucker. I thought it was Peter Erskine for some reason, but... No, it's, it's Dan, Dan is such a badass, and he was at Berkeley when I was there, and he, he didn't stay long either, and um, he's just, like, really low-key, but that dude works his ass off, and he's, he's like, he sounded like Peter Erskine when, we, when he was 18. That's right. how good he is. So, right. um, anyway, like, we were talking, and... I had already decided I wasn't coming back to school. This is before I hurt myself. And, but I was like, maybe I'll stay in school and I'll study arranging. Like I was like, at least I could stay in music. But I, I, there was no space in the dorms for me because I was planning on just dropping out and doing this cru- cruise ship gig for six months. So Dan took the cruise ship gig and he let me sublet his apartment. And, um, and so around that time, I, like, I ran to Steve Zinsky and he was like, Check this out. Like, fuck what those doctors said. Go see this guy. Here's his number. He's a little out there, but just go there with an open mind and see what he has to say. So I went to this dude named Richard Zukowski. And, um, and like I said, like holistic medicine, alternative healing, that was not really mainstream yet. And um, so like the first thing he did was like what he, he asked me what my diet was. And like I was like, what does my diet have to do anything with, mm-hmm. with anything? But because I didn't understand yet. And he broke that down to me. And then he was like, I want to see what you look like playing. And he was like, you need to, you need to change ergonomically because I sit super low. Mm-hmm. He's like, you got to sit higher. You got to do this. And, and he like, you know, he felt my tendons. He was like, yeah, you're, you're a fucking mess. And he was like, I can get that better and we can start rehabbing you. And it worked within a few months I was playing again and I started gigging wow. again. And, uh, my friend Lisa Maxwell, who was a horn player at Berkeley, she was friends with Hiram Bullock and she's like, Hiram's looking for a new drummer. So 
Yeah. So like all like I went from like thinking my career was over to like getting a gig with and at the time like Hiram was my hero. So I was like I'm playing like in the like one of my favorite artist bands. I got my first endorsement with Zildjian and um yeah and things picked up from there. But I was in such pain. I mean I was on the road for like for over ten years after that and I was like miserable the whole time. Talk to me about that because you had mentioned well you know before we we got on like you were yeah. saying you basically had three different careers you were yeah. first a, a touring drummer and you were doing all yeah. these gigs and then you became a producer and then now you're a session drummer so yeah. walk me through sort of like what the touring situation was like and why you started moving into other areas touring I really wanted to be playing fusion and jazz and uh, oh this I'm just gonna put one thing this this was. I forgot to mention the reason this started was when I hurt myself, when I was talking about learning how to play simpler and like leaving more space, I kind of had no choice because all of a sudden playing 30 second note ride patterns was just really painful. So I had to learn how to play simpler shit. And then over the years, my taste changed anyway, where I actually prefer listening to simpler stuff and playing simpler stuff. But I kind of had no choice. And also Hiram being my first boss, he would yell at me when I would go into that shit. He'd be like, what the fuck? That's bullshit. Don't play that. <laughs> and, he, and he would be like, if you want to make a living, listen to Charlie Drayton, Steve Jordan, and Steve Ferroni. Play like right. that. So he's like, just pocket and taste. That's it. And, um, and, um, and also, uh, my first time playing with Sequencers was, was on his gig, and he was like, you got to lock with that shit. He just gave me really good advice, really practical stuff. Right, but uh, right. So my touring started with him, and... Then the next artist I was on the road with was a band called Tribal Tech. And um, Kurt, they were a L.A. fusion band. Scott Kinsey, I'd been to Berkeley with him. He's their keyboard player. Yeah, who? somebody was just talking about them. Um, they were like hardcore, I wouldn't say underground. I mean, they're known. But uh, Kurt Covington was a drummer. Kurt, he's a badass. Um, Gary Willis on bass and Scott Henderson on guitar. And like Scott Henderson had played with the Chicory Electric Bands mm -hmm. and All Syndicate. It was just, it was really high level of musicianship, but like very self-indulgent fusion, like as fusion as fusion can get. So like somebody recently found me on my website and sent me like a, just a cassette recording they made from the audience of one of the shows I did with them and sent it to me. And I actually put one of those songs on, up on my website just to have some like an example of like old school fusion playing. Right. Like I listened to it and I'm like, man, my chops were really happening back then, but it's like the music is hard to listen to. It's so tasteless. And, and, and Scott Henderson, like after the first gig, because I had like two days to learn like 90 minutes. No, it was two 90 minute sets of, of different music. So like 180 minutes of through composed fusion music. Um, and like, I basically, I had to read the gig for the first couple weeks because Kurt had just split and he needed a drummer last minute. So I had two days to rehearse, but that wasn't enough time to memorize everything. So, and I just, I had like flown there from Europe playing with, with a different band. And so like I was using charts for the, for a while and, uh, it was just a lot of shit. And the, after the first gig we did, which was, was in Italy, he, um, and I was like super jet lagged and out of it. I, I barely got through the gig. He pulled me aside. He's like, man, you nailed it. You got all the songs. That's great. And he said, but do me a favor. I never want to hear this. And he like mimes, he mimes two and four with the, like, like a simple beat. And yeah. I was like, you, you don't want a backbeat? He's like, no, nah, man. He's like, if I wanted to like, if I wanted to be playing over that, I would have taken the gig with Miles. Like, something like, <laughs> like He actually turned down the gig. Like who turns down the gig with Miles Davis? Right. But, like he liked complicated shit. That's why he liked playing with Chikoria. And like, then, um, um, yeah, so like 
which was the opposite of what Hiram Bullock was telling me. Hiram was like, play less. So right. I played with them. Yeah, exactly. So I was playing with them. It was really good. And it, it actually was good in the drum industry because that was kind of like a coveted gig. So like, it was a good look for me. Like um, Zil- Zildjian, like when I started with them, they weren't giving me like the full hookup. And then after that gig was when I got like the full hookup. And um, so there were good things that came out of that gig, but like I couldn't wait to never play fusion again right. after like a few months playing with them. And then, <laughs> and then I, I was still in the jazz world. I played with Larry Coriel, Julian Coriel, uh, Patty Austin, who's more of a, like an R and B singer, but she still works on the smooth jazz circuit. Mm-hmm. And then global, global Washington junior, which was probably my favorite touring gig ever. He always had great bands and, his music, all his, all his records, it was like either like Gad or Harvey Mason, you know, like just great drummers playing great pocket shit. Right. Um, I love Grover Washington. Yeah, and then I actually had to leave that gig because I got my first big pop gig was Annie Lennox. And at the time, like 95, she was like just dominating the, the music world. And, and it would have been a chance to play like on every TV show, SNL, The Tonight Show, The Grammys, like all that stuff. And um. And not just in America, she was doing a promo tour for her new record. So it was playing big TV shows in every country and concerts. And so I was friends with Richie Morales. So like Richie took over the Grover gig. And then after that, Richie and I kind of traded the Grover gig back and forth until Grover passed. And the gig I'm doing next week that I was, we were talking about before the phone call, it's actually a Grover like tribute show. Oh, Philly really? Nice. Week. It's his whole, it's whole, his whole old bands with like Najee and Gerald Albright playing the sax, like awesome. running the um but yeah so grover was a great gig um yeah but then i kind of shifted to pop and then after that annie i went back to grover for a minute and i did a lot of one-off things and the thing about touring which doesn't happen as much with session work is like you can never do all the gigs you get called for because each one is a a long time commitment so there were some artists that i really wanted to play with that i got called for that i just wasn't able to do because i had to like i either had to honor another commitment or i had to look at like just what's going to be better for for my career because this artist is just like a one-off like they want I, they just call me to fill in for the drummer for a week or this other artist if i go it could be years of work so right. um and then i did the thing with which a lot of drummers have done where like i did like a bunch of work in a band in europe that was like sold millions of records there completely unknown in the states right and and then did the same thing with the j-pop band that was like dominating the charts in japan but completely unknown anywhere else and um but those gigs paid a lot and at the time the, with the exchange rate if i got paid in like yen in japan or like pounds in the uk where i was based for for like a year it was like getting two dollars per every dollar yeah. so um it was a cool thing and um but by yeah by, by like 99 i was just like I, I just i can't really do this anymore physically it's grueling and also like in between tours i would do sessions when i could and but i would but i would miss calls for sessions all the time because i was out of town so i was like let me just stop the road thing and just focus on session work and um but there wasn't and i was getting some session work but i was the reason i was able to pay my bills without having to go on the road was the production thing because i wasn't just programming drums i was pro i could program synths and do full tracks so i started getting like production work that would be farmed out from like like a big name producer who would say I need a track like this in two days, whatever. And, mm. um, and then while that was happening, I started getting like slowly more and more session work as a drummer. And then, and then people started knowing 
finding out that I, there were some people that only knew me as a programmer and some people that only knew me as a drummer. Right. And would you, would you rather be home or would you rather be on the road? Do you, I mean like physicality aside, like if, if it wasn't oh, uh, home, I'm yeah. like, I love being able to work in my apartment. I do so much like pretty much not all, but most of the programming work I do, I do from my apartment. People just send me shit. I do it remotely. Right. Um, I love traveling, but I hate the, the, the actual process of going from place to place. Like I hate airports. I hate flying. Right. It's not like a fear of flying. It's just like you being just cooped up yeah. in that stale air. And it's better now than it was. Like when I first started touring, like they still allowed smoking on flights. So yeah, like a 14, brutal. like a 14 hour flight to Japan with like chain smoking going on right next to you is really bad. Yeah. And, um, anyway, so yeah. I still get to travel for work, but it's mostly to LA and occasionally like I did a bunch of recording in Paris last year, but that, that was only because the artist who had started the record in New York refused to fly after a while. And, and, and she insisted on using the same people. So the the label like begrudgingly flew us out and put us up for a few weeks, but that almost never happens anymore. That happened more like way back in the day, but now it's a combination of because everything's digital and it's easier to work remotely and the budget labels don't have the same budgets they, they had before. So right. it's, it's rare unless it's like just somebody who has like independent financing where money doesn't matter. They'll fly you out, but it's, it's kind of rare. So yeah, I'm mostly in New York with like every year I'll just do a few trips to LA. Back in a minute with Steven, but first a word from the sponsors. DW Drums is largely to thank for the success of this podcast. They've been supporting it from day one, and that's what they do. They support, they foster drumming initiatives all over the world, including this podcast and a lot of other things. You can learn more about DW, the great products that they make, and the great family behind the name uh, by going to dwdrums.com. I just got back from Musicians Institute. I did some interviews while I was there, and it amazes me the quality of education that you can get at MI. So whether you're looking to learn how to program drums or learn the music industry, learn film scoring, anything like that, or just want to step up your game as a player, you can learn all of that and more at Musicians Institute. They've been in the heart of Hollywood since the 70s, and I definitely recommend that you check them out if you really want to take your career to the next level. You can learn more about all of their great curriculum at mi.edu. Hey, did you know that whether you're a full-time or a part-time musician, you can write off expenses that you have for drumming, sticks, heads, gas, tolls, all of that sort of stuff. Now there's two options. You can track all those expenses by collecting all of your receipts in a shoebox and sifting through them at the end of the year, or you can get FreshBooks. FreshBooks is a great way for you to track your expenses. You can do it on the go right from your phone, and you can also use it for tracking time, billing clients, and creating invoices in less than 30 seconds. The best part, you can try it for free today by going to freshbooks.com forward slash drummer, and be sure to enter drummer's resource in the how did you hear about us section. Start your free trial today with no credit card by going to freshbooks.com forward slash drummer. Now more with Wolf. Say you were 20. Yeah. Being where the state of the industry is, do you think it'd be too late for you to get in now and make a career as just being a session drummer and and not going on the road? I would say to just be drummer drummer slash programmer. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I don't want to say just a drummer because the truth is if I didn't program, I would not be able to afford to live in Manhattan just doing drum sessions. It's just not enough work doing that. And even if, 
I generally don't turn down session work, but I do turn down stuff where somebody's like, hey, can you play on my track for $100? And I'm like, I can't even pay for the studio time because I, I can program at home. Right. But to track drums, I go to, to real studios. Like right. I, for a while, had a room where I would mic my own drums up, but it never sounded as good as like working with the best engineers and the best studios. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so there's a lot of times I just, people hit me up and they'll ask me to do something and I'm like, you need a little more money. Even if I give you the total bro rate. Right, I, I can't lose money. I can't, it can't cost me money to play on your record. Exactly, yeah. You still got to cover the studio time, whatever. So, right. um, so yeah, there just isn't enough work. So pr between programming and drumming, and also I've been fortunate that like I've worked on a bunch of hit records and so I get residuals from there. I get money coming in like every quarter. I'll get checks just through the special payments fund, which is kind of through the AFM musicians union. Mm -hmm. And then I'll get neighboring rights payments, which neighboring rights. I didn't even know what it was until a few years ago. I started getting a bunch of emails from neighboring rights collectors overseas saying, you know, there's a lot of money waiting for you. And, and uh, I talked to a few friends that, that had discovered that and they're like, oh yeah, man, my first my first check was for like 30 grand. It was just like my, and then after that, the first check's always the biggest because it's been money that's sitting for like 10 years until they track you down. Right. And then after that, the checks get smaller and smaller, but they're right. consistent. I think that just happened to a buddy of mine. He was like, man, I just found out that like these people owe me tens of thousands of dollars. Exactly. Yeah. So, so basically like I, I, I'll have, it's, you know, the music business, it's, it's generally feast or famine. So, um, when I, when I have a, like a year where I'm just like working, so much that I literally don't have a day off. I just put that money away because I know there's going to be months where like shit's not happening or mm -hmm. I mean, something's always happening because I like I'm still producing. So I'm developing artists, but you don't make money in the meantime. Dude. Like you don't make money up front for the most part doing that right. shit. Right. So, so the good thing is I always have income coming in just from residuals from, from all these records. But, um, it's yeah. So like, but if I was, I think if I were starting now, I, I could make it make a living doing what I'm doing, but I would have to do it in Nashville or LA or in New York. I would have to be playing like like weddings or something. I I could still do just music, but I would have to like do other shit until my name got out there. Right. Because even like though I said like I was working with like big names all through the '90s, but like that's different from and I had already played on some platinum records in the '90s, mm -hmm. but. Um, but still, I wasn't still considered a first call musician. Like, like the, the, the two platinum records I did in the nineties, one was a Bee Gees record and one was a Celine Dion record. Oh, actually three, two Celine Dion records. Um, anyway, I got the call for the Bee Gees thing because whoever, like Ferroni wasn't in town. It was actually the same thing with Celine Dion, two different producers, but both guys were like, well, Ferroni wasn't, wasn't in town. So I had a list of other, like, like, like the B listers right. and your name, <laughs> name was on the top of the list. So and I was a little insulted after the, 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 like I did the Celine session. I didn't even know who she was at the time. It was like 90, 95 or something. And, um, it was, it was an old school session where you're in a room with like a full band in the room. She wasn't there. There was, I think like, a, like the demo singers vocals we were on the track already. And, um, and afterwards the producer took me aside and he said, Hey man, I just want to thank you. And it was also a charts gig. I had to read it. And he was like, man, you really did a great job. Um, I took a shot on you and I'm glad I did because like, like, like I really want a Ferroni. And as he's saying this, I was like, are you trying to compliment me or insult me? But, <laughs> but, um, but he was it's, like it's a, a backhanded compliment. Exactly. And he's, and he was like, but you really stepped up. So great job. And I was like, Oh, thanks. Yeah, and the good cool. thing about that was the next time that guy did a Celine record, I was the first call. Right. So, 
and this is that next one was like later in the 90s and and then it's but it took me a while to kind of become a first call like a list drummer right program whatever so and there's and a lot was, of i mean i've had so many people on this podcast that are that are doing sort of the stuff that you're doing but they have the same not the same story but they have been doing this for a very long time so they've been they were doing it when people were getting you know tons of money for sessions and they were doing it when people were actually recording full bands in a recording studio i've had very very few and i don't want to paint a negative picture or or discourage anyone but like i've had very few people who are you know in their 30s and they're like oh yeah i i play session i do sessions and yeah it's i do it's, you know yeah i program and i make a full living yeah it's i mean part of it is also just being around long longer so like my like if somebody looks like if you if you google me like uh my wikipedia page used to have like a pretty full discography on it and then wikipedia took it off because the person who put it up there is is a friend of mine and you're, that's like breaking wikipedia rules. oh yeah they fit, somehow they yeah. figure that out yeah yeah but um but either way if you go but i wanted to do that because if you go on all credits i have three different or all music there's three different all music pages for me because there's a steven wolf a steve wolf um and two steve there's two steven wolfs and a steve wolf so and and i and i've like written them so many times i'm like can you please combine all my shit onto one thing right so but if but either way oh, you're saying it's all you yeah except <laughs> for the one of the stephen wolves is like a nashville session guitar so there's like but it's obvious if, if yeah. you look at it and it's a country album and it says guitar that's not, well, me, not but yeah. everything else but yeah and it's a lot of credits because i you know this is my first my first major label sessions were in like 1990. So well, just looking at, I mean, I'm looking at your site right now, just reading down a few. It's like Alicia Keys, Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, Beyonce, Pink, Aretha Franklin, Britney Spears, Avril Lavigne, Shaka Khan, Joss Stone, Kelly Clarkson, Jennifer Hudson. Like, yeah, it's, and the thing is, I don't even remember, like if, if you go further down that list, cause it's a long list. I, I'll see them. I'll look at my site once in a while. Cause someone will, someone will ask me something and I'll be like, Oh yeah, that record. And and that's not even a complete list. This is the stuff that I, when I first made my site, that I could remember. Right. And because, like, every once in a while, like, I'll run into someone and I'll be like, yeah, you worked my record. I'm like, oh, shit, I did. But that was, like, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So, oh, I did? You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did so, you pay me? Oh, okay, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it's part of it is that, is just just having that like it's almost like a, a brand you can trust like if I, if, if you think of you know, you're basically you're marketing yourself as a brand you're branding yourself right and um and that's why when you go to my site the first thing you see is just drumsticks on top of an npc so mm -hmm. it just kind of that that picture is my brand it's like i, I drum and i program i'm right. in both worlds uh -huh. the lesson that i'm getting out of this sorry to cut you off but what yeah. i'm hearing is that now, I, I, now, like, we don't have to talk about, we don't have to go down the road of, like, the idea that we're in a microwave culture right now yeah. and, and yeah. sort of the instant <laughs> yeah. gratification. But yeah. the lesson I'm getting out of this is, like, it's one block on top of the next, on top of the next, on top of the next. So it's like, yes. you did this gig yes. with this guy and it led to this thing and oh, then they got, absolutely. and then this person hired you for this shitty gig or studio session that you got paid $7 for or whatever. And then, totally. You know, yeah, I've heard you talk about that on, on other pod. Uh, with previous podcast interviews on your, on your podcast too. Yeah. And it's absolutely true. Everything connects to something. And, and people are like, I want to play on a platinum record right now, but you know, and it's like, well, how many records have you played on? Shit. No, man. I mean like, yeah, my first recording sessions where I was in high school, 
I remember the first time I didn't know what a fucking click track was. You know what right. I mean? Like, like I learned on the job and I, and before I got into production, cause like, I, I just like, and like I said, I envy the kids that have access to, if you have a laptop now, you can do anything. Right. And from, from like learning to, to, if you have a Mac, you, you can make a record in garage band. Like mm-hmm. you can make like a, like a radio ready record in garage band back in the day. Like, unless you had like really rich parents, you couldn't have a recording studio at home. You know yeah. what I mean? Like maybe if you could save up, you'd get like a, a Tascam cassette four track machine, yeah. which even then was like a lot of money. So my, my way of learning to produce was just taking two boom boxes and just like doing crude homemade multi-tracking. And, and I figured out that that headphone, if you plug it into a mic input, you can actually use it as a microphone. Yep. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. So it's like, I just was like, you know, like just figuring shit out and learning like from a really early age. These and kids I learned, don't know the struggle. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And also like when, like when I'm like, there's plugins that do everything now. So like, like people will be like, Oh, what plugin do you use when you did this remix to get like the glitching effect on the vocals? I'm like, I didn't, I did that by hand because mm-hmm. when I came up, I was doing everything in like drum machines. And like, if I wanted to, to do like a side chain or like a gating effect, like like a glitchy effect or whatever. I actually had like racks of like compressors and gates and reverbs and delays, and I would patch that shit in by hand and like do it real time. Yeah, I mean, like a, you know, like I I just remember doing stuff with patch bays and just like yeah, exactly, yeah, like one chord to the next. And it's like, oh my god, yeah. it's a me. It takes you it takes you three hours just to figure out what chord to plug in where. You know? And so, yeah, but, but yeah, going, and going back to what you said, like, like blocks and building, like there, there are people now that are like major producers that were like assistants, like on, on my early recording sessions before mm-hmm. I was really a name, they were, they weren't a name either, but we kind of came up at the same time. So like there's that that's built in mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, so ev- yeah, everything does build on everything else, but you, you know, there's still, what I've noticed for me is that like it goes in waves, like I'll work for one producer who's hot for a minute. Mm-hmm. And then they're not, and right. then there's a different person. So, um, and then if you have, if you don't burn bridges, like those people stay in your life in one way or another. Right. And it's, it's, it's really, uh, and I know you know this and pretty much any working drummer is going to tell you the same thing. It really comes down to like being good at what you do and not being a dick. That's right. it's kind of it. Yeah. <laughs> that's like, that's, that's the key. It's just be good <laughs> at what you do be- and, the best and get along ever. with people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So do you know, um, um, do you know Ken Lewis producer? I th- oh, I, is he the dude that, that does this, like the, he does the, the replay loop things? Uh, like, or am I thinking of somebody else? I think you're thinking of somebody else. He, I mean, okay. he worked on like, he, he worked on a lot of Alicia Keys records and Bruno Mars and all. Yeah, he did. If, it's one thing of he, they had him come in for the girl on fire beat because they didn't want to pay for, for the Billy Squire big beat sample. So he yes. had his guy recreate it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know him personally, but I know who he is. Okay. So he, so I know him really well. And Dylan actually is a good buddy of mine who played on, uh, who played on girl on fire. That's a drummer. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he, and he sort of expressed the same thing. You know, he was like, what people don't understand is like, I was, you know, cleaning a bathroom in yeah. the studio just so I could get in there and, and yeah. see what people are doing and see what's going on. And, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday. They were like, Oh, I want session work. You know, I was like, well, go do some free session work for somebody or something. You know, like I still to this day and I, I'm like sitting like, not, I'm not saying this to be arrogant. I'm just saying to just for context, like in my apartment, like the wall, when you walk in, it's like covered with platinum records. Right. So, and it's like 
just knowing that 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 I have that going on, I still do free shit. Like if it's somebody that I want to get in with and like they need a reason to justify paying me and and I need I like I need that. Don't get me wrong, I don't do a lot of free shit, mm-hmm. but I still will do free shit or I'll do free shit with production. I do free shit all the time if it's right. an artist I believe in. Sure. Um yeah, you know, it's it's like you're, you're never... adding value to the relationship first instead of calling somebody and be like, "Hey, man, listen, I'm a I'm a drummer and uh, I really need some session work, and you do sessions. So next time you have a session, can you call me, please?" Yeah. It's so like, it's come like, come on, man. Yeah, and I mean, I also do stuff for free just because, like, I can't make everything about money. You know what I mean? But, um, like, there's some stuff that I want to do just because I want to do it. Of course. And in an ideal world, like they would have money on those projects too, but sometimes they don't. So mm-hmm. like I'll do free shit, but yeah, no, so I, I will do free shit. I mean, that's how I started getting major label remixes. Like my first 10, 20 remixes were all on spec and I didn't right. make a penny for, right. and it wasn't until like I had one, I got really close a couple times where like the, the artist and the producer loved it, but then someone at the label was like, now nah, we're going with this so-and-so's remix. Mm-hmm. And, and this was after like, I would put a, like remixes. You're basically re, reproducing the whole track so you know i might spend a week or two on a remix just like really nailing it Mm -hmm. and um so and like didn't make a penny off of remixes and also i invested in a shitload of gear and this is before i was getting a lot of production work so like i wasn't you know this was all out of pocket and it wasn't paying for itself yet right and um yeah it wasn't until i got like one remix that ended up like going like getting the, the label was into it the artist was into it and then it did well and then after that, and, and then they were like, okay, how much do you want? And it was the first time actually getting like paid well for a remix. And then after that, anytime call, anybody called me for a remix, I was like, I don't do it on spec. But I had to do like 20 on spec before I started being able to get paid up front for remixes. Mm-hmm. And like I said, 20 doesn't sound like a lot, but when each one of those is like a week or two worth, worth of work, it, it is a lot, a lot of time. Of course it, yeah. it is. Especially yeah. at a point where you've already worked, you've already done all of this great work and you have credits and it's like, you As still... As a drummer, yeah. But, yeah, but but it's a different area of my career. And then, but the, the, the sad thing is, is, is like, because of the technology, anybody can do a remix now. And like, mm-hmm. there's all this stuff where it's like cookie cutter shit where you don't have to know how to like create these effects. It's just done for you. You don't even need to know how to program beats. Like it's done for you. There's so much... so. So how do you how do you feel about all that about the technology and and I'm good with it. I, I think technology overall is is, is there are more pros than cons in any area. Like I do photography as a hobby, and like I have friends that are like pro photographers, and they're they're mo- like 99 of them are the same way. They're like, yeah, you know, I could like be grumpy and insist on using like film in a dark room, or I could just embrace Photoshop and like digital cameras and just get on with my life and get right. on work. So. It's the same thing. Like I, when I started, like everything was tape, and like punching it on tape was a lot harder than like punching on Pro Tools. Right. So um, I've, I've done. I mean, it's it's rough. yeah, you know, yeah. So like, but and every once in a while, I work with a producer that insists on working with tape. Now most of, most of them, they know better than to track the whole thing on tape. They'll record it in Pro Tools and then put it through tape, right? Just for the sound. But but every once in a while, I work with somebody who's like younger. And they think they'll read up like, oh, you know, so-and-so did this record with this gear in this studio. And they're like, it's got to be on tape. And I'm like, it really doesn't. And, but <laughs> it's going to get it's, compressed it's like, anyway when it goes. You yeah. Know, when it gets yeah. And I was like, look, it's your dime. Do whatever you want to do. You can do it. But, um, but yeah, so like technology, 
I don't mind it, but yeah, it it ha- it did affect my remix work because what happens is like the people at labels that would like hit me up for remixes are like, hey, we're looking for a remix for so and so. Here's the acapella, um, and I'm like, what's if if you're not hiring me for it, at least give me a demo budget because like sometime at a certain point they would always give you a demo budget up front either way. So that way, if it doesn't go, you you still make some money. And they're like, oh, there's no, no no more demo budgets. That's done because we have 10 other people that are volunteering. Like all of a sudden, all these kids are, are willing to do shit for free. Mm-hmm. So, and they could just do it. Like I said, they do it on a laptop. So right. I was like, you know what? Let's just fuck it. Um, <laughs> and at that point, I, that's around the time when like I was playing, I was working as a drummer and programmer and occasionally like co-producer on a bunch of big records in a row. So at that point I was like, you know what? I'm done with remixes. I'm, I'm good. Like I've kind of, carved out my niche as a drummer programmer on right. records. I'm just happy doing that. Right. So. My thing with technology is I think you either got to be on one side of the fence or the other. So like you can't, you can't complain about how technology is changing everything, but do it on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean, that, I'm like, you can't teach yeah. online lessons and complain that like, you know, the internet is screwing up everything. You oh, know, I'm I, like, I know who you're talking about. So <laughs> there, I, mean, oh, I, I know w- one person. Uh, I was going to say, I wasn't like, I wasn't saying oh, any, I know. anyone in general. No, but I, no, that just made me think of somebody in particular who, who just recently said that. And I was but, like, but I'm like, if, yeah, no, it's a that totally valid point. Unless you, unless you ride a horse to the, your gig, I don't want to hear shit about you not oh, wanting yeah, no, to embrace look, technology. Look, yeah. And no, I'm, like I said, I'm all for it because <laughs> I wasn't like, saying you, I was saying, oh, no, but I'm saying but that, but like I said, as much as it, it affected my, my income with remixes and stuff, um, I still think it's a good thing. And even right. though I don't use like every bit of technology that's available, there's some stuff that I think it's just like, um, like the reason, like I'd like to program things from scratch and mm-hmm. do effects by hand is just because it's, it's more special. It's like a chef, a chef's not going to like serve you soup out of, uh, of a can, right. you know, like they're going to want to do it from scratch. It's just, you can, you can do more if it, t- if it takes longer, it's more personalized and better quality. Um, but that being said, there are a lot of plugins that I love. I mean, my, my studio now, my, my apartment used to be full of gear. It was like a TV, a bed, and like just gear everywhere. And I have like a 32-channel mixing desk, 230-space racks full of outboard gear, and a, like a triple-tier keyboard stand, a DJ desk. It was like a wraparound like console, basically, just gear everywhere. And now that's all gone, and I just have like one table with a computer, an interface, and two speakers and a MIDI keyboard controller and that's it. And, and it's all, I mean, all of this stuff is in, is in my Mac. Right. And, and I love that I can do that all. And I love that I can like go to any studio I want with, with nothing but a thumb drive and just sit down and program. I don't mm-hmm. have to bring an MPC with me anymore. I don't have to bring Apple gear with me anymore. And yeah. And I love, and even though like I, I say, it's kind of like, like kids have it so easy cause they can go on YouTube and learn everything. I learned shit on YouTube all the time because the thing about Pro Tools is there's all every time Pro Tools releases like a new like update there's there's new tricks you can do mm-hmm. and if you spend enough time in the studio you'll realize that like nobody knows everything like I've I've had every time I'm in the, on a session and I'm doing anything at the computer at least once the engineer will show me something and be like, Hey, you know, there's this, and then they'll see me do something. And I'll be like, Oh, what's that? Like, we're always like trading pro tool secrets and like new key command shortcuts. And I learned half that shit on YouTube tutorials. Like right. I'll just, I'll look up like pro tools version 12, five, like new, whatever shortcuts. And yeah, so I, I love technology. I love the internet. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it, it, 
with any new technology, there's there's going to be like people with less skill that that get over because of it. But mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I think if you're good, like I said, if you're good at what you do, you're not a dick, and you persevere. Like you'll make a living. It's you know, it might not be always. Look, I don't. I haven't loved everything I've been. Every I haven't loved every gig I've done, or every record I've done, or every tour I've done. But you know, it is even like look. I was I did a lot of weddings, and I've heard you talk to other drummers about them. I that was really really good training playing in a wedding band. Yeah, like yeah, I like it was. I think not there's a always, misconception that people are like, if you're doing what you want to do for a living, then it's just going to be bliss every single day. And it's like, I run, you know, I've run drummers resource and there's like 30% of the time. I'm like, there's a lot of stuff that I just don't feel like doing. And I do it, you know, it's like whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And, and I don't have a manager half. So half my job is just like, just following up money and right. with logistics and shit. So yep. yeah, no, I, I didn't, when I was a kid and I was banging on pots and pans, I was like, I can't wait to be like chasing, to, like you know chasing down the record labels to to get paid and sending them my tax forms and, and like <laughs> arguing with them to like cover my my airfare and like right. yeah and right. whatever that, and i don't care what level you're at or what you do like yeah. whatever job you do there's part yeah. of it that sucks oh yeah even it doesn't the people, matter. yeah even like i have like a few of my friends that i came up with have gone on to be like massive like songwriters and producers and like I look at them and those guys like are making fuck you money, you know, right. like, like, like multiple mansions, you know, right. like just more money than you, I could ever conceive of. And you'd think that like with all like the, the success and the power that comes with it, that like they don't have to do any bullshit. And, and you think they don't because they have like a, they have, they have a personal assistant and their personal assistant has a personal assistant. You know what I mean? Like, right think they can delegate everything but there's still some shit they got to do and they, at the end of the day they still have to answer to some suit somewhere right you know what i mean like mo money mo problems man. <laughs> exactly yeah so it's yeah it's just you know just part of part of part of like you said any business so so um, i think the moral of the story is be good at what you do and, and don't be a dick, and don't be a dick. <laughs> oh and, and don't give up because like i i always use layla hathaway as an example i don't know if you know layla but like Layla was at Berkeley when, when I was there and, um, she was, you know, first of all, she's Donna Hathaway's daughter, right, right there, like music royalty right there. Also, she sings her ass off and back at Berkeley in the eighties, she sang her ass off and also is a beautiful woman. So you think, okay, she, she's comes from music royalty, beautiful, sings her ass off. Like she's destined for success. And not surprisingly, she got a major label deal right out of school, mm-hmm. but the record didn't really do much. And then for 25 years, she did like, you know, she had a following. She put out indie records and she toured and she'd, you know, be a guest on other people's records. But like, she wasn't like, you know, headlining arenas. She right, wasn't right. like on the charts, like nothing like that. Didn't win any awards or anything, but she kept doing it and she kept doing it. And then like, I would see something like, like when Prince did a tour where he was having like a different artist open up every night and have them as a guest he invited Layla because Prince liked her and Stevie Wonder liked her. Like important people were aware of her and liked her. And, and then I remember like it, it like people that are just aware of her now, they'll think, Oh man, this, this girl's always been huge, but no, but for 25 years she was doing lower level shit. And then one year, just like right place, right time. She was on a snarky puppy record and it won a Grammy. Right. And then since then, for the last three years in a row, she's won multiple Grammys and she's had number one songs since then. So everything that I thought was going to happen for her, like 
over 25 years ago has happened in the last three years. But mm-hmm. that was after like 25 years of just being out there every day doing what she did. Right. So yeah, it's like perseverance is such a big part of it. And um, yeah, that, that's something that I think enough, like I meet a lot of young people that I have to remind them of that. They're like, oh, man, I can't believe it hasn't happened yet. And it's like, dude, just, just be patient. You're just 22. You, yeah, exactly. <laughs> do what you do. Just do what you right. do. Keep doing it. Yeah. Right. I'm actually, I'm listening to this book right now. And I mean, the audience says I'm, I, you know, I, I like business. So I'm, I read a lot yeah. of business books. And the guy was like, I've interviewed, I forget how many, it was like a couple hundred CEOs. And, you know, it was like, what, what makes a good CEO? And they were like, you know, is it this? Is it that? Is it that? And he was like, out of all these people that I interviewed, the number one answer that they said that differentiated them from everyone else of why their company was so successful was like, I just didn't give up. Exactly. I That's just kept going and so everybody, much, yeah. when everybody else was giving up, you know, when you get to this point, I just kept going. And that's... That's key. There is one other thing I left off. The, so it's be good at what you do. Don't be a dick and persevere. Don't give up. But the other thing is also be realistic because people will hit me up and say, can you check my thing out? Like, I mean, on especially Facebook, you probably hear from drummers every day. Every day. Like, and I heard you talk about this about you did a short podcast about like self promotion and not making it spammy. Right. And like, I mean, hey, can you play the song for? And they'll name like a big artist or producer I work with. And half the time I won't even like read further. But once in a while I'll click on the link just for the hell of it. Mm-hmm. And you know, ninety nine percent of the time it's 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 so bad I'll have to like actually call the producer that they're referencing and saying, is this you pulling my leg? Is this a fake account? Is that you? Like, <laughs> because it's so bad. I was like, how could somebody seriously send that to me? And, right. and that's another thing is like, you got to be realistic of where you're at. Like you have to, and cause I've had a lot of people like who wanted me to work with them, wanted me to produce them. And I'm like, no, like you're not ready. I was like, like it's clear who your influences are by, by what your stuff sounds like listen to your stuff and listen to their stuff is your stuff at that level. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about production just as a singer. Are you right. there? Right. And, and like, and you know, we've all had to do this as drummers and that's, that goes back to Berkeley when I didn't want to have any like chinks in my armor it was the way I said it was if there, it's impossible to be the best drummer in the world. There's no one best drummer in the world. But even at Berkeley, I was like, I want to be, be I want to be able to play everything authentically and, re, and be able to like own the style. Mm-hmm. So, and so I would just, if there was anybody at school who did something that I couldn't, I would work on that. Sure. And, and then out in the world, since becoming pro, like every once in a while I'll see somebody, I'm like, that's some cool shit that I wasn't aware of. And anytime there's a new genre of music, like especially as a programmer, I have to stay on top of shit and I have to learn it. But um, yeah, I mean, I thought I knew how to play go-go. I don't know if you've ever, if you've had any go-go drummers on the show, but like. I haven't. I, and I, I want to. Um, I'm trying to think like Juju would be the guy cause he's, he's yeah. still around. Yeah. So, but I remember like seeing Juju play when I was young, I saw him and Ricky Wellman were the first two go-go drummers I saw. And, but, and just so we're clear, like yeah. we're talking about go-go, like DC go-go, oh, yeah, DC, not, exactly. not yeah. like a go-go. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, but I, and I was listening to, to a lot of go-go records and I loved it and I thought I knew how to play it cause like I learned the parts, but I didn't know how to, like I wasn't feeling it right. And mm-hmm. the way I learned that was like, there was a remember tramps was was tramps still open when you were in new york it was it may have been gone by then it was a club like so. like chelsea midtown area and they used to have like i saw larry graham in grand central, grand central station there i saw chuck brown at soul searchers there and the first time i saw chuck brown um and juju was playing with him 
and um, a, a guy I was playing with was friends with Chuck, so he was like, you, you guys can come sit in. So we sat in on bass and drums, and we played Bust and Loose with him, and I thought it was great. But a friend of mine had taped the show, and he was like, oh, man, I got a tape, but I listened to it, and like... I just like I heard it and like my mood just like sank. I was like, I suck because <laughs> it was like it didn't suck. And like, you know, to the average and I've heard you use this term, the average civilian, I did fine. Right. But like people who know that music, it it, it just wasn't right. And the mm-hmm. reason was it's I sounded basically like like John Bonham playing Gogo and that like I was just sitting like too far behind and and like just it was the wrong type of swagger in the fills and it was, it was just, it was good, but it wasn't, it wasn't authentic go-go. The feel was just not right. I wasn't mm-hmm. like feeling the pocket. Right. So yeah, you're like the, parroting it. You don't, yeah. You know. So for like the next year, anytime I had like five minutes, like at a sound check or if I was, cause I didn't, I haven't had a practice room in, like until a few months ago that I finally have a practice room again. And like I hadn't had a practice room since I was a teenager, you know? So mm-hmm. But I would because I was always working. But anytime I had five minutes to myself on a kit at the studio getting sounds, I was playing go-go and that was it. And and I finally knew I got it together when like I my friend that was friends with Chuck, we ended up opening up for Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers at Wetlands, another club that's no longer there. Yeah, it's not there anymore. Yeah, and Danny Sedonic, I don't know if you know him, great percussionist. Danny was playing with us. So, like, while Chuck was playing, and go-go, for people who don't know, go-go shows, like, the drums don't stop. Just the groove keeps going. And then, like, Chuck Brown would talk, and then they would go to the next song. Mm-hmm. And so, like, Juju, like, like basically kind of, like, hands me one stick, and then we, like, without stopping, we switch, we, like, trade places on the kit. And Danny gets on percussion, and my friend gets on bass. And Chuck doesn't know that we've like traded places and then he counts in the bust and loose and we play it and he goes around he turns around like halfway through the song and looks surprised he didn't realize <laughs> it wasn't juju not that i can play go go as well as juju nobody can touch juju but right. like i played it well enough that i was finally had learned how to like play go go authentically so but if i hadn't heard that tape of myself like sucking a go go i wouldn't have known that i sucked a go go so right. Um, and that's, so that goes, that's, sorry, it's a long story, but relating back to like, people need to be realistic about their, their skill level. Of course. So so yeah, so it's like, be good at what you do, be realistic about if you're good enough at what you do to compete, like be aware. And and then yeah, don't be a dick and don't give up. That's, it's like, that's the key. That's it. We're done. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you need to know. So if people, uh, if people do want to get in touch with you or they want to send you their (laughs) other music so you can check it out, but if people want to, if people want to, uh, reach out to you, contact you, uh, follow what you're doing with the best way to would be, I guess, to just go to your website, right? Go to my website. Um, I'm on Facebook just as my name, Steven Wolf. Um, and then Instagram, I'm on Instagram. I don't post a lot. I'm trying to post more. I'm like, just in terms of endorsements, like they like you to have followers, you know, so right. they see, which makes it's just marketing it's business. Um, so, but I haven't re- like my friends that have the most followers that have like tens of thousands, they're posting a lot of videos and I, I can't really get with that. It's like the world doesn't need more videos of people playing drum shit, right. but, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little more active on Instagram. So if people want to find me there, it's wolf, at wolf underscore drums. Actually, let me look on my Instagram to make sure that's what it is. This is how much I don't use Instagram. Um, I just grabbed my phone. I'll follow you up. Yeah. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, wolf underscore drums. W-O-L-F underscore drums. Uh, Oh, I was already following you. Oh, cool. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, well, yeah, hit me on Instagram. I check my Instagram messages, Facebook, Facebook. If you're not already my friend, it'll probably go to that. Facebook has that spam message folder. Yeah. What they call it. So, um, but yeah, on my website, there's a contact form on my website. It goes directly to my Gmail. So, um, yeah. So any of those places. And I'll link up to, uh, like, I, uh, there's show notes for every podcast, so I'll link cool. up awesome. to all your info, how they can you. get with you, your your website, and all that fun stuff. Um, but thank you for, one, for taking the time to chat with me and for, for sharing the knowledge that you have. And I hope that, or I know that the audience definitely needed to hear some stuff from somebody who's who's doing it every day and and you know trying to navigate these waters because they're definitely they're definitely not easy so every little bit helps so i do appreciate it thanks for having me i appreciate it yeah and um sorry it took a minute for us for people who aren't don't know this took us a few weeks to actually make the call happen no worries so um oh and i I don't know if this is self-promotion or not but like i do i i do teach career consultation like that like like i because People hit me up for drum lessons. I, I have one drum student. It's my acupuncturist who's like, we basically barter drum lessons for acupuncture. But right. other than that, most of the teaching I do, it's people that are already programmers that want to learn to program. I do that. And I do that online. But I get a lot of like young, like really great drummers that are just trying to, like you said, navigate the music business with like the new paradigm. So they'll, they'll just like pay me for an hour and mm-hmm. like, I'll just answer whatever questions they have and like try and steer them in the right direction. And, um, you know, I had one student that I basically helped him make a website cause I was like, how do you not have a website? You know, that kind of stuff. <sighs> Thank so, you for yeah. saying that because I say yes. that all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, people, if anybody wants to know more, because obviously, you know, I think we've been talking for like an hour and a half. There's like, you know, there's endless information we could talk about just right. like final points. So if anybody has questions specifically more about what I do, feel free to hit me up. Perfect. And, um, oh, thanks for having me. And, um, anytime, my man. Cool. So there you have it, the one and only Stephen Wolf. And for the links to everything that we talk about, obviously you can visit drummersresource.com forward slash session 290. Also check out session 289. Uh, that is, I talk, I get pretty deep into the topic of whether or not you should work for free and different ways that you can, that you can work for free. If you're interested in checking that out, that's drummersresource.com forward slash session 289. And for those of you who have been leaving reviews on iTunes for the podcast, I really do appreciate it. And if you haven't already, please take a second, head over to iTunes, leave an honest rating or a review and that helps out in a big big way it doesn't cost you a dime and it'll only take you about a minute and a half so if you could do that i would appreciate it and until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening i do appreciate it and i will be talking to you soon peace